Welcome to Changing Conversations with Billy Burke and me, Sarah Philp. This is a podcast creating space for conversations with, for and by educators. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. When we talk about what matters, we come alive and conversation has the power to guide us into new and different actions offering the potential for great things. We bring you conversations that have resonance both now and in the future. With the help of guests and the odd solo episode, we explore leadership, learning and well-being. We have the conversations we know you want to listen to. We really hope you enjoyed the first part of this conversation with Santiago. In that conversation, we were exploring learning as a practice of freedom. Here we begin to consider how we can stimulate change, but also what we need to preserve and hold on to. Santiago believes that here in Scotland, we have the potential to be an island of sanity, but to do that, we have to take some action. And you you talk so powerfully about protecting humanity and keeping, keeping that flame, that spirit alive, you know, and I suppose that leads us on to thinking about, well, how do we... Um, create the change that we that we need create the change that we want to be and I know you you talk particularly about social movements um, and how they create the the potential or create cultural change so I, I don't know how do they start where do they start have they started right, right. <laughs> uh, so to, to, to respond to that question what I will come down to is what's the fundamental unit that we need to change in order to trigger yeah. Um, movements for pedagogical renewal. And that fundamental unit is the pedagogical core. It's the relationship between an educator and a learner in the presence of an object of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Many have argued that that's at the end of the day where learning happens or not. If you change everything else, but you don't change what's happening in this fundamental relationship, learning does not improve. So that's the unit to change. But also, I have, as I have argued in the past few years, the pedagogical core also is a fundamental unit for well-being. Uh, because it entails human relationships. And and if it is relationships of domination and control, you create ill-being. You create well-being when there is dialogue, when there is mutual learning, when there's love and care, right? Um, The same with learning. You don't cultivate learning under domination control. Not the kind of learning we talked about and that we thought was the important version, the the right version of learning we need to cultivate. (laughs) Um, But the same is true for equity. The same is true for democracy. At the end of the day, in the pedagogical core, you have relationships of power. And if what you have uh, is the conventional configuration of the pedagogical core, which is one of domination and control, then you you threaten, you weaken equity, you you stifle equity, and you uh, undermine democracy. Because what democracy needs is uh, a relationship between the state and the citizen, or in a small scale, the teacher and the student, that's a relationship of dialogue of mutual learning, of learning from each other, of changing each other in the process of interacting. That's the fundamental unit to change. And why is it important to change it again, beyond the fact that when you turn the pedagogical core into a set of relationships where what's happening is dialogue, mutual learning, et cetera, you are feeding learning, democracy, uh, well-being, equity. But also what we have come to learn is that the pedagogical core is like the nucleus of an atom, you know, inside the nucleus of an atom, there's tremendous energy that if you release it, it reverberates, it creates tremendous transformation, sometimes destruction, but a lot of energy, right? 
and uh, and uh, and I want to stay on the transformation, the energy that resides there. What we have found over and over again, especially in cases like the uh, pedagogical movements that I've that I have described in my book and that have really inspired this notion of educational change as a social movement, is that when children rediscover their power to learn, when teachers rediscover their power to learn, when teachers discover their capacity to help students rediscover their power to learn, something happens inside them that you can no longer stop. Mm-hmm. When a student discovers that he can understand something as simple as a math problem, but really understand it, not repeat it, but really make sense of it, almost the immediate impulse is trying to help somebody, somebody else learn it. It's like when we experience something really good, our, our desire is to help others experience something similar. And we see this over and over again, the same with teachers. When teachers find out a way to unleash their, their children's power to learn, they want to they wanna show it to other teachers and, and, and you know, invite them over, it's come see what's happening here, etc. And that's what starts, starts to create the movement. That's what creates, it's liberating, um, humanizing energy uh, in ways that are incredible. When this movement of pedagogical renewal in Mexico that we took part on started, we had no idea. It would spread to over 9,000 schools all over Mexico. We had no idea. That was not our plan. Our plan was just try to figure out how do we create conditions in the most remote communities for young people to reconnect with their power to learn. And then it started to spread like wildfire beyond whatever we could have imagined because we tapped into it. So our effort has to be on influencing what happens there. And the good news is that it's within our reach. It's not policy, it's not kind of funding, it's not resources, it's not money. It is the pedagogical core and that's that's there. That relationship between educators uh, and uh, learners in the presence of knowledge, that's there and it's within our reach, regardless of what is happening outside. And one thing that we have come to learn is that when it comes to leadership, to head teachers or to uh, local authorities or uh, ministers of education, the influence you can have on the pedagogical core is by, by necessity, indirect but it has to be intentional. And when you're intentional about it, so that your strategy, for example, your policies, have a clear causal pathway between what we're sending here to schools and how it will impact in a positive way the everyday interactions between teachers and students in the presence of knowledge, that's when you start gaining traction, creating conditions for the beauty of human, the human spirit to just be unleashed and to be um, uh, to be um, uh, spread across entire educational systems. It's not that easy because what happens is that when you start practicing learning as freedom, you get in trouble, and you get in trouble because the culture of schooling will try to devour your attempts to liberate learning. And it's not, not an intention, it's not a it's not a ill intention of institutional culture. It's the function of culture. Culture is a conservative force. It is the kind of behaviors and beliefs and things we do and say 
that helps us gain a sense of comfort, of stability, of predictability. That's what culture does. So no matter how reasonable uh, an attempt to change it is, the immediate reaction, the default reaction of culture is to try to devour it, to destroy it. So, so even though the conditions we need for productive learning are relatively simple, we need to make them happen in a system that's not designed for it and that will see it as a strange thing and will try to eat it, will try to devour it. Uh, and that's where the hard work comes in getting out of the way, in finding what's getting in the way and finding the ways to change it. And that's the big, powerful, difficult change. Actually, creating productive learning environments is relatively simple. If we just think about what we learned well, how we learned it, we have the key conditions and we can start to use our imagination. Really, the thing is how we do it within a machinery that's not designed to support the learning. Uh, if we think about the, the power to learn of our students as a little flame that's weak, we can think, and the, pardon the joke, I'm going to use a bit of humor here, don't take it too literally. But if our, the power to learn of our young children is a little flame that's weak, our educational systems have become machineries that don't know how to build fires. They're designed to blow wind and to throw water. <laughs> and that's a big challenge. That's a big challenge. We have to find how to protect, first how to protect the flames from the water, right? How to stop throwing water and wind and how to repurpose the machinery so that it relearns how to build fires, how to sustain them, etc. It's a metaphor, but I think it gives a sense of the difficulty of it. It won't be easy, but it's absolutely worth our best effort. Agreed. I love the metaphor. And you've already picked up, Santiago, that the desire seems to be there in Scotland. It, I'm thinking about some of the work we've done over a number of years now around trying to empower schools um, and trying to draw a line more with between what happens in the middle of the system with what happens in the classroom. You know, that, that desire has been there to build around the learning of, of, of the child. Um, I think you've already picked up that it needs political will at, at the top level. Um, and interested then in the idea of social mobility and how, how can we make conversations um, more you know, less at our own level and more up and down the system. How can we listen to each other more to create that right. culture of trust? Yeah, I think I think communication at all levels and uh, across levels, across sectors, will be very important. Communication and coordination. I think it's a good idea. I was very encouraged to to hear the cabinet secretary uh, yesterday talk about uh, placing quality teaching and learning at the center. I think it's going to be very important to gain consensus of what we mean by quality teaching and learning, but I think it's a really good start. And she also was talking about listening to teachers, understanding, bringing in teachers to the discussion. I think all those things are very important. I think um, uh, one of the things to do is to start asking, there's phenomenal things already happening in Scotland. Um, when I went to the school that I visited, the primary school that I visited, I asked the, the, 
the direct question to the to the head teacher and the school leaders, the principal teachers in the school, what is helping you from what the system is offering and what's getting in the way? And the list was overwhelming. It was way longer for what was helping than, was, than from what was constraining. Remember, I'm talking about an, a primary school here. But they were saying... I'm getting a lot. I have a lot of support from my local education agency, from my local authority. I feel like I, I really have the power to make decisions as to what's best for our children. And I'm receiving stellar, fantastic professional learning on the part of Education Scotland and, and, and the system as a whole. So it, it's, it's helpful. It's helping us rethink our practice, redefine what we do, reorganize, etc. So I think something that would be very helpful first is to gain consensus on. Uh, it's, I don't think it's only about sitting and discussing, but sitting and discussing what? So one is sitting and discussing what, the, what does the learning that we want for our students looks like? And I think you already have beautiful examples, living examples, floating around in many schools, primary schools, secondary schools already. So make, them, make those more visible and ground your discussions on concrete examples and try to gain some consensus as to what the learning that we aspire to to, to to cultivate looks like. And then what are the supports that will help our children, our teachers make that learning happen more? Uh, and maybe the most important question, and what are the things that we're doing that are constraining what we need to do? And then how do we get those out of the way? One of the, one of the people in the session yesterday was realizing what, that one very important thing to do is to declutter. <laughs> our system. There are so many things. There are so many attempts at reform. There are so many things that we're piling up on top of each other that then never go. Once we have clarity as to what we want for learning and for pedagogy and for learning environments, let's look at the clutter of things we're sending at schools and decide what are the things that we can stop doing, right? There are, I'm sure there will be many things that we could stop. Um, and, and that will contribute to, to creating a sense of relief, of, of, of power, etc. Now, um, with regards to political will, I think uh, overall across the system, with every person I have talked to uh, all, at all levels, there is a very powerful will. Uh, there's, there's very strong commitment. Um, there may be right now some uncertainty at the, at, the, at the whole system level. There have been changes in leadership, like all those kind of things. But what I would argue is that um, it is very important, regardless of who's on top, to take the responsibility to do what's within your power, to do what you know is right to do, right? Uh, we are seeing this over and over again in systems all over the world, that we have middle leaders frustrated sometimes with whoever the minister is or, you know, just waiting for approval, like all these kind of things. And the thing is, waiting for the top to have its act together, it's a path to depression and, uh, and um, disappointment. So instead of waiting for that, start creating from where you are with what you have. Marshall Gans, another amazing mentor, teacher, friend, an expert and a, and a participant in, in some of the most important social movements in, in America, puts it beautifully. He says, strategy is how we turn what we have into what we need to get what we want. How we turn what we have into what we need to get what we want. 
Uh, and I think, I think there's already a lot that Scotland has that can be leveraged and turn into what we need to get what we want. Uh, my mentor, Gabriel Camara, has said it beautifully. Don't, don't fight the system you don't like. Create the alternative that makes it obsolete. Right? That's the work we have to do. Not waiting for permission. Not waiting till, you know, everything aligns fully so that we yeah. can start. We start where we are with what we have and do what we can. And we use strategy this way. We are clear on what we want. We see what we have and realize how we turn it into what we need to get what we want. I think that's the nature of the work. And, um, and I think you, you, you have, I, I have been appalled in a good way by the uh, unity in understanding about what's the work that we need to do. There, mm -hmm. There's been no disagreement right now with all the people I have interacted with about where our emphasis has to be. And again, that's a very important step, getting to, a, to the point where we know what's our common purpose. But the hard part is to know that we will have to do it with a machinery that's gonna get in the way, <laughs> that's not designed to achieve it. Uh, and I think we need to be very clear, very intentional about it, because that way then we can start acting. Uh, in a way that can, can change it. I had talked about islands of sanity um, as, uh, you know, some time ago, and I do think that Scotland may well become the first nation to become an island of sanity when it comes to learning, to student learning. Um, and, uh, and, and I think then what, what, what is possible to do here is not only important for Scotland, but for humanity. Uh, and that's why I feel a very strong drive to stay close to what you guys are doing, uh, because there's a lot at stake and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, possibility for the protection of the human spirit. Yeah, if it's if it's the right thing to do, then do it anyway and start from where you are. Absolutely agree, and that's really inspirational. And just on that point, in terms of starting with. Um, where we are and what we have. One of the things that we know about our schools is that they are communities in, in quite a broad sense and they have many partnerships and that includes, um, you know, professional partnerships, but also the partnerships that we have with, with parents and carers and, and the families around our children and young people. How do we utilise those kind of relationships and, and partnerships in this? Um, you know, uh, one thing that I would say is uh, discussion will be important, but I think there's been over discussion in Scotland. So uh, action. Mm. Let's let's do it now. Let's start yeah. now from where we are. Don't wait till you have everything together, neat and neat, beautiful strategy. When it comes to humans, even the most perfectly designed strategy often fails at the first attempt. So just know that you will fail at the beginning. Okay but fail and learn quickly. That's the thing. Create your best possible strategy with the best of your knowledge right now. It's not about irresponsibly training whatever comes to my mind. It yeah. is about creating, given what we know and what we already know how to do, let's create a good, decent strategy with, with good chances of success. But knowing, as Tony Bright and his, the, his team talking about and doing the work on... Uh, uh, improvement science uh, with the network improvement communities do is 
know that your strategy will be is definitely incomplete and probably totally wrong. <laughs> and what you have to do is to just to embark in it, just do it, but yeah. learn quickly. Okay, so what's working, what's not working, and refine it over time. Yeah. And uh, and that's it. It's action. Yeah. It's purposeful action. It's not perfect action, but purposeful. And learning in the process. Um, and you can do that in a classroom, you can do it in a school, you can do it in a local authority, you can do it nationally. But mm -hmm. I think that's the way to approach it. Yeah. Not discussing much more. It's there's been enough discussion. There was a national discussion. There's clarity <laughs> about what the priorities are, what we do, what do we do about it? And don't wait till you have the perfect strategy. Do the best possible, but don't take too long planning. Yeah. Uh, just plan, have a good enough plan, put it to test, see what happens, and improve it over time. That's will that's what will create the the successful strategy. The learning over time of what's working, what isn't, and the adaptations we make to it, mm -hmm. and, and that for me ties back with with something that you talked about yesterday around creating experiences, because it's yeah. in those experiences that it connects with people's emotion, and and that as you've you've said today as well, you can't kind of go back from that, you can't undo that, and I and I think we fall sometimes too much into the into the space of the talking and and the exploration and and then we run out of time to do anything and time is always comes up as a barrier doesn't it and and here's where play comes to comes to comes to mind right now again there's a, a, a marshmallow and sticks uh, tower exper experiment <laughs> i don't know if you checked it but uh, the idea is you give a group of people uh, a marshmallow a string and some sticks and the challenge is to create the highest possible uh, tower that sticks them that that holds the marshmallow on top right adults take forever discussing what will be the first structure and then rush at the very last minute to create something that ends up being actually much much shorter than what children build what children do is they just go for it they give it the first try it's a horrible first attempt but they learn quickly according to the edge to the age the, the height of the of the of the tower is is uh proportionate or or related to the age of the people in the group <laughs> the younger the group the taller the tower the older the group the shorter the tower right mm -hmm. so the idea is to play to play in this very serious way to try things out to fail quickly to learn quickly and to go again yeah. Um, and to do it in a collaborative way with everybody involved. Um, I think that's 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 what we have to do. And in terms of how to how to stimulate change, you were talking about experiences. Yeah, there are four ways in which you will not propel change. You will not create um, changes in behavior. Mandates, just because I tell you I, I told you so, or because I'm telling you you will do it. Uh, explanation. Uh, uh, evidence or encouragement. None of those things will produce the changes in behavior we need. It's experiences. Create experiences that help people see, help people rediscover their power to learn or help them witness children rediscovering their power to learn. Or create experiences that make the status quo intolerable. That's another way to think about it. And, and uh, you know, I talk more about this in, in the keynotes. They, I know they will be recorded, et cetera. But um, um, 
the only additional, uh, the other way in which you can stimulate change is that make sure that before you propose any change, you understand, before you propose any change in practice, you understand existing practice. So part of our work is to understand why teachers, why head teachers, why local authorities, why the cabinet secretary are doing what they're doing. Not just judge the action, but try to understand what are the beliefs, what are the values behind the action. Because when you do that, then you can gain more clarity as to what the strategy that will be helpful be. And the thing is, in addition to gain better information as to what to do, because you know where, where are the core values and beliefs that are guiding the behavior, you also start to build trust. Because to inquire about it, you need to engage in conversation with the people you're working with. And I think that's, and that's a double, you know, it's a, it's a double win. Yeah. Um, anyways, I'll, I'll put it there. Yeah. And I guess those experiences and conversations not only protect that flame and that spirit, but they also nurture it as well. Right. 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 Yeah. You, you talked um, you talked a lot at the beginning about, you know, we've got good conditions here in Scotland um, and we've talked about what we would what we would like to change and how we liberate learning. Um, we've got the good conditions, but what should we be really mindful of of preserving? Because obviously when we start, you know, things get confused and change. But what do we need to be mindful of really preserving? Because it because it's a gift to what we want to achieve moving forward. Uh, preserve the vision. Uh, preserve the community around it, the, the fact that it's a shared vision, mm -hmm. um, preserve the good relationships across the entire organization, um, preserve the public regard for public education, uh, and preserve the examples already underway. Primary schools in Scotland are doing phenomenal work already, and, uh, and, and some secondary schools as well. Preserve that. Pay attention to what's already being done rather than just trying to blanket change everything and, 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 and killing the good stuff on the way. So I think those are the things to preserve um, uh, and preserve the tremendous talent and commitment that this nation has in their educators, their system leaders, their, their uh, school leaders, etc. Santiago, we could have talked for forever <laughs> but at some time you do have to go home um and i know you have many other commitments today as as well but i know for you it's been an energizing visit and it's certainly been an energy energizing visit for the people that have had the opportunity to engage with you and keynotes as you say have been recorded this conversation um will be available for people to listen into so um, just a huge heartfelt thank you um, from all of us in Scotland, I think, um, to you for coming, to sh for sharing and for bringing such um, heart and personal element to your story as well. But before you go, we finish our conversation um, always with two questions. So the first question is, um, what are you reading at the moment? I am. Um, I'm reading... I have four books right now, kind of midway through that I that I'm reading. I, I tend to, depending on my mood, I focus on different things. But uh, the first one is Margaret Whitley's uh, "What Who Do We Choose to Be?" It's a phenomenal book. Uh, um, it's really shifting. Um, it's one of the most influential readings I have I have embarked in in the past decade. Um, Who do we choose to be? It's facing reality, reclaiming leadership, restoring sanity. 
phenomenal, phenomenal book. Um, uh, the second one is Vivian Robinson's uh, Reviews Change to Increase Improvement. Phenomenal. This notion that I shared earlier on about understand existing practice, this is what I learned from Vivian. Uh, I, I just make, become an, a, 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 an investigator of existing practice. That's, that's what I learned from, from her. And, and this book is very short and incredibly powerful. The third one is uh, Trust and Inspire by Stephen Covey. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal read. It's lighter, but I think it also brings us to the discussion of, see if not the command and control kind of leadership, then what kind of leadership? And he suggests yeah. is trust and inspire. And the fourth one is uh, the, key, the, the Heat Will Kill You First by um, John Goodall. Is John Goodall. Goodall is for sure the last name. I don't remember if it's John, but uh, the, kill the heat will kill you first. It's a really important contribution to um, how to talk about climate change because he does it through story, not just through data and alarmist uh, claims, but through story. And it's, it's phenomenal. It's terrifying in some ways, but very illuminating in others. So those would be the four, the four books currently on my desk yeah um and i may as well do a shameless plug for our own podcast here while we're talking about it because we've we've actually interviewed uh, vivian twice so listeners can go back and listen to your conversation yes. about reduced change and increased improvement as well so a little plug for ourselves there <laughs> and yeah. and the final thing we ask all of our guests to do is um to share a quote or a message and i feel like you've you've done that throughout the conversation but i suppose it's an opportunity for you to to leave us with one final message, what would it be? Um, it is, it's gonna be a quote from Howard Zinn, which actually opens Margaret Whitley's book, uh, the one I was talking about, who do we choose to be? I have it right here in front of me. I, I have it in my knapsack. It's been accompanying me today and throughout this whole visit. And this is a quote by Howard Zinn, uh, American historian. We don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents. And to live now as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. Perfect way to end. Thank you so much. Thank you, Billy. Thank you, Sarah. It was such a pleasure to be, to be here with you. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. If you enjoy listening, you can support us by following on your preferred platform, sharing on social media, or leave us a review. Thanks again.